Without a blood tie to a murder, most might lose interest in doggedly pursuing a case that's gone cold. The only people who keep fighting to solve it year after year are the investigators working the case and the family involved. But what happens when a total stranger, an 18-year-old kid, starts building family trees that lead to a killer? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. I'm not sure murder cases can have a happy ending. After all, a life has been needlessly taken. A family grieves forever. Yet this week's story is about tenacity, sincerity, and love, really. How an 18-year-old kid, determined to provide a family with answers, never gave up. That's something I definitely relate to. Bringing families of unsolved murder and missing person cases answers is one of the things that gets me up in the morning. If you've listened to my narrative podcast, Paper Ghosts, or heard the Crossing the Line Patty Luce episodes, you understand what I'm talking about. My case this week begins on the morning of March 18th, 1964 in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, which is part of Luzerne County. Back then, Hazleton was a charming, small industrial town about an hour south of Scranton, Pennsylvania. We all know Scranton, right? From the office. We're talking very blue-collar coal country. This is rural Pennsylvania. Think the Oscar-winning Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, Meryl Streep film, Deer Hunter, and you'll know what I mean. Maurice Chivarella is nine years old in 1964, a cute kid with bobbed black hair, a magnetic smile. She's in third grade and comes from a loving, caring, tight-knit Catholic home. There's this beautiful photo of Maurice sitting at a desk. She's looking down at her prayer book, rosary beads hanging from her wrists, her first communion dress on, the veil flowing over her head down past her shoulders to the floor. She looks content, intensely prayerful and peaceful. It's a wonderful image, really, of a young girl proudly displaying her faith. I mean, nothing could really be more innocent than this photo. Maurice had about a 10-minute walk to St. Joseph's parochial school, so she set out alone at about 8 a.m. that day. I was a child of the 70s myself and walked to grammar school. We didn't have a care in the world then. Never once do I recall us thinking that a walk to school could be anything other than totally safe. Maurice had four siblings, and they all generally walked to school together, but that day, March 18th, Maurice left early by herself. She needed to get in well before class starts because she's carrying several cans of pears and beets to give to a teacher, Sister Josephine. Who didn't know a Sister Josephine? Maurice occasionally talked about being a nun herself one day. She played the church organ and loved her Catholic faith. She's just a quiet girl, and one of her siblings later tells the media she's sweet. She walked down West 4th Street, which had a small-town feel back then, comprised of tenement houses, the church, hardware store, penny candy shop, you know, the cement sidewalks with grass coming up in the cracks, cars parked along the street. 
kind of like a fairly common downtown area within a farming community. It was abnormally cold that day, and Maurice is dressed accordingly. At 10 minutes after 8, she's just four blocks from home when neighbors, who see her carrying canned goods, a gift for her teacher, they ask her to step inside for a few minutes to warm up because it's so cold. Maurice says no. She's determined to get in early to deliver those goodies to her teacher. But Maurice never arrives at school. After that brief interaction with neighbors, she vanishes, disappears. She's gone. Just like that, the first day she walks alone to school, and she's now missing. It's a story we've all heard far too many times before. It was likely someone close by stalking her. Opportunity presented itself, and he took advantage of a child's innocence. Of course, the family and school are frantic. Where has she gone? Did anybody see her? Who the hell took her? How could a girl walking to school four blocks from her home just vanish? By the time the noon hour passes and nobody reports seeing Maurice, they begin to suspect the worst. Since Hazleton was a mining town, the downtown area was surrounded by coal stripping pits. Stripping for coal is simply skimming the ground cover until you run into a band or a strip of coal just below the surface. So there's these depleted stripping pits all over, mining areas that have been exhausted of the resource and now just sit like empty, barren fields outside of town in the middle of literally nowhere. Okay, so I had to Google this because I couldn't quite picture it. And Then I realized I've seen these a ton. We've all seen these a ton. It's almost like there are steps down into kind of like a giant hole, almost like an Incan pyramid, but upside down into the ground. So we've all seen these. That's Catherine Law, my producer, and she nails it. That's exactly (laughs) what they look like. And we're talking about two miles away from where Maurice is last seen walking that morning. And there's this man teaching his son how to drive near one of these abandoned coal strip mines. This one in particular has been converted into a garbage dump. It's about 1 p.m., five or so hours after Maurice disappears, and he notices something as they are driving near a section of the dump. This is bizarre, really, to me. But, I mean, this is how the brain works. The guy thinks he's looking at a large doll like a life-size doll lying eerily on the top of a heap of refuse. He stops the car, walks over to inspect it because it looks so damn strange. And there is Maurice. She's dead. Her hands are bound together with one of her shoelaces. Her ankles are bound with the other shoelace. Her mouth is gagged. They're going to learn later that she has been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. This crime sent a shockwave throughout the small community, frightening children and parents to the core. I mean, think about this. This is everybody knows everybody here. This is super small town stuff. And this is a horror show, basically. One cop says later that from that moment on, the town was never the same again. A missing child in a town this small was huge news. The only thing people talked about after it happened. It was so rare, so shocking, it literally injected anxiety and fear into the community. Parents talked about it at the dinner table, warning their children. Neighbors got together at the fence line and discussed the repercussions. 
how their lives had just changed. If this sort of thing could happen in Hazleton, well, you know, nobody is safe. The town even wondered if they should continue to send kids back to school in the days that followed. And I'd just like to have Catherine read something before I continue. Here is what Carmen Marie Radke, Maurice's sister, said during a press conference just recently. We have so many precious memories of Maurice. At the same time, our family will always feel the emptiness and the sorrow of her absence. Consequently, we will continue to ask ourselves what would have been or could have been. I feel this is something we sometimes forget within the murder stories we cover. The fact of what could have been. It gnaws at these families for the rest of their lives. You know, what could that person have done in their lives? What other lives could that person have changed? In one of our other recent episodes as well, the family talked about, you know, we all had kids together and he didn't have an opportunity to to do that. My kids didn't get to know their cousins and they would have created even more lives. It's the ripple effect of one murder. Yep. That's the term I use. It just goes on and on and on and on. The butterfly effect forever, mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Maurice's brother later described the Chivarella household the day after Maurice's body was found to People magazine. Quote, people screaming, crying, rolling on the floor, literally, because of the horror of it all. My mother was totally in shock. The family doctor was there administering some type of sedative to her. My father was like a zombie. It was horrible. This is the reality, really, of murder. This is what's going on behind the scenes, right? And this is what we don't see in true crime documentaries. You know, we don't see this immediate aftermath in real time. I mean, we can't really. But here is a family member describing it, and it's a horror show. I mean, it's, I I just can't understand. I can't fathom this. Many believed then that whoever had murdered Maurice was still around, walking throughout the community. One of them. Let's take a quick break and come right back. And if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do. It just takes a couple seconds. The brutal rape and murder of Marie Chivarella happened at a time in America, 1964, when extensive, intense investigation into these types of crimes was really in its infancy. Sure, cops did the gumshoe work of knocking on doors, patrolling neighborhoods, maybe rounding up the usual suspects and poking a finger into their chests. But any real concentrated investigative work, including profiling and digging into the psyche of a potential perp, was still many years away. Profiling back then consisted more of guesswork than anything else. It was a period in crime history when the Boston Strangler was on the loose and the Mississippi burning murders of civil rights workers were the headlines on any crime news reports. But then again, you didn't see many crime news reports. There was crime scene collection, however, and bodily fluids were found and recovered from Maurice's jacket. Evidence that was stowed away securely, which, you know, a lot of credit for doing that in this case. Yet even crime scene work was a simple matter of photographing and collecting noticeable trace evidence like fibers, hairs, etc. And also fingerprints. As word spreads about this vicious crime, the investigation into Maurice's case turns massive. 
More than 250 members of the Pennsylvania State Police worked on the case over the years. There are nearly 5,000 pages of documents in her case file, and yet not one single arrest. The state police were hot on a priest once, a guy already suspected of a murder in Bristol, Pennsylvania, but that lead fizzled. There was the local exhibitionist, and who didn't have one of those back then, who became a major suspect. He was interviewed, and the state police asked him to come in to take a polygraph. The guy said okay, but committed suicide right before going in. If that's not some sort of admission of guilt, maybe not to this crime, but something else, I don't know what is. And as, of course, as we know, this stuff escalates. Who knows what he was doing other than just flashing, right? That, I mean, that should be like a phrase on our show. Um, (laughs) It always escalates for these guys. And it doesn't say the same either. They're not going to keep flashing forever. That's right. They're going to act. As massive as this investigation gets, it also absolutely goes nowhere. Cold doesn't even begin to describe what happens next in this case. Remember, it begins in 1964. It's not until 2007, 43 years after the murder, that something stirs the investigation up once again. And this is where great detectives who care about people come into play. And you know the type I'm talking about. A new detective has some time, starts to look at cold cases, and while reading through a dusty box of documents, he develops a hunch, a theory, or has a gut feeling about something. They have a passion to crack open the case and see where they can take it. In Maurice's case, there was still that DNA sitting there, waiting for the right person to come along and see if maybe, just maybe, a match was out there somewhere. The sample found on Maurice's jacket is then sent to the lab to see if they can at least develop a DNA profile from it. That's where you start. That turns out to be the easy part. They could and they did. The DNA sample or profile was then placed into the databases we talk about on Crossing the Line all the time, CODIS. It's a long shot in many ways. You put it in and see if a hit comes back. But after a short wait, news comes in that there is no match in Maurice's case. The unsub or unidentified subject in Maurice's case apparently had never been arrested and put into CODIS, or he was arrested for crimes at a time before CODIS collection was a thing in law enforcement. So the Pennsylvania State Police decide to run the sample every month to see if a hit randomly pops. Current, former, and even retired detectives begin getting involved, many of them on their own time. With the advancements in technology and a renewed hope that the killer could still be out there, a fire begins burning in everyone to solve Maurice's case. Forensic genealogy seems like perhaps it could work in this particular investigation. Still, another 12 long years pass. Then, in 2019, a new technology presents an opportunity. And I just love this technology, I must say. Parabon Nanolabs developed what is called snapshot forensic DNA analysis. Selected biomarkers in DNA are objective, quantifiable characteristics of the biological processes. In other words, it measures what makes us physically look like we do. A forensic snapshot from DNA generates a descriptive profile that contains sex, ancestry, 
pigmentation, not just skin color, but hair color, eye color, and freckling, and even face morphology. Part of the process includes putting the sample into the computer system, waiting, and then jumping mother of crime-solving Batman, (laughs) a composite image of what the person could look like spits out of a printer. I mean, this is just, to me, it's just remarkable. It really is. And if you look at these images, I, I, it, I, I'm speechless about this. I, Phelps, I had never even heard of anything like this. This seems so far in the future, and it's now. It's now. It's happening now. And, you know, it's good for cases like this because you have nothing to go on. Right. 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 You, you have a piece of DNA, but you have nothing. Nothing is happening. Nothing. So why not? Right. And if you have this picture of someone, it's very different than a description or even if you had like a, what do you call it? Like when they draw a picture after you describe someone. A composite. A composite. It's very different than that. It's very different than a composite. This feels like something got a minority report or like in the 90s, what we imagined the future was going to be like some Gattaca shit right here. That is crazy. And remember, this is all based on genetic markers. Right. It's not based on someone saying, well, he might have had blue eyes, short hair. This is based on genetic marker DNA. And if you put that photo out there, somebody might be like, oh, yeah, that was Jim down the road in the 60s. Yep. 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 Wild. You know, and it generally gets a lot of things correct, I'll say. Again, you Mm -hmm. place the DNA into a computer system and out pops a picture of what your suspect might look like. Insane. Now, an actual image is available for everyone to look at. The person responsible for murdering Maurice, according to the Parabon snapshot, is white, kind of skinny, with short, dark brown hair, and regular Joe features. Parabon Nanolabs also did an age progression from the time the murder happened, guessing the guy was in his 20s, to when he is 45 and then 65. And, you know, you can Google Parabon Labs, Maurice Chivarella case, And you can see these. And I'll just say, stay tuned to the end, and then you can match them up to the end of the show, and you'll see what I'm talking about, how incredible this is. Throughout the investigation, the Pennsylvania State Police searched as far away as California, hunting down tips it had received, but nothing came of that. One lead had Maurice being kidnapped by someone who attended a basketball game in town the night before she was abducted and murdered. This lead seemed significant and made the most sense. It also gave hope to those in town and her family that perhaps Maurice's killer would soon be found. It was just one more lead, however, that went absolutely nowhere. There was another lead of a kid in town who was in the woods by the refuse coal mining strip pit on the day Maurice's body was found. He had told police back when she was found that he saw a man leaving the dump earlier in the day. But as they questioned the witness, police began to feel that psychological issues prevented them from taking anything the witness had to say with any weight. So. Not a reliable source. No. By 2020, however, with a new DNA profile based on the latest technological breakthroughs, they make a submission to forensic genealogy databases and begin to develop a family tree for the unsub. I mean, This case is just layers and layers of technology going into it. Mm -hmm. With the new DNA profile uploaded into GEDmatch, one of the many genealogical databases, the state police were able to get its first family tree match. A very distant relative of the killer, 
what they believe is a sixth cousin is identified. This information goes public. This is such an interesting point you make because I think people think, oh, well, they got a match. So it's a brother or a sister or at least an aunt and uncle. No, this is, do you know who your sixth cousin once removed is? No, they're pretty far away from you. So when you get this type of a hit, like there's a lot of legwork that has to go into that before you figure out the person. You make it very clear that, yes, they get a hit, but investigators look down at the hit and they're scratching their heads like, how are we going to do all this work to find uh-huh. out to bring this family tree down to the immediate family? One person. Yeah. So what they do is they make it public. They put the information out there. But it's not detectives who chase down every lead from here on out. Not an investigative journalist with something to prove. It's not even a devoted family member. Enter 18-year-old Eric Schubert, a freshman college student in Pennsylvania. Eric has been studying forensic genealogy since he was eight years old. He had even started his own company, ES Genealogy. He likens the science of genetic genealogy to solving a puzzle. Eric emails the state police in early 2020 saying his services are free of charge and he wants to help with Maurice's case. He offers to help with the roll up your sleeves and dig into the family tree work that is so cumbersome and time consuming. It prevents many police departments from being able to solve cases with forensic genealogy. This was not Eric's first go-around with police. He'd offered and helped in several prior cold cases for law enforcement. So in this case, Eric is vetted by the state police, probably with one eyebrow firmly raised, and finally, gladly welcomed onto the team. The search for Maurice's killer is back on. Also, this just popped into my mind. Didn't they also deputize him or no? They made him a volunteer deputy, something like that, but... You know, they had the guy. They had the right person working on this for them. They knew it. Yeah. The the one story that I found very interesting was the first time they met him. Uh-huh. They met him at a like a coffee shop and the the two detectives said, "Hey, you, you know, you want a coffee?" and he's like, "Um, no, I'll just take an apple juice." <laughs> I just thought that was great. And and the, the detective said when they heard that, they knew they had the right guy. Right, right. This isn't just some like strange person who's like No, this is a, this is like a science nerd. He's a kid. <laughs> but this wasn't like it is on TV where the child prodigy comes in and gives everyone the answer they've all missed until now, you know? Uh we've seen that show a million times. This was dogged work by a kid who likes to solve crimes in his spare time. I mean, this is hard work. Over the next 18 months, Eric spends 20 hours a week digging into every possible connection to that original sixth cousin. This means working backwards, building family trees, zeroing in on certain family members, looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack and connecting the case back to Hazleton somehow, or finding the precise owner of the DNA from the crime scene. Okay, that's what this is. This is like an upside down triangle. You're starting with all of these families and all of these people, and you got to get it down to the point. As our Incan pyramid again. This is a theme running through this episode. <laughs> yeah. Eric and the lead detective on the case begin emailing and texting and talking every day for months and months and months. Eric is basically chiseling away at degrees of separation and homing in on, with any luck, one particular suspect. 
It takes him 50 complete family trees to get to a name. By the time Eric is done, he finds a pair of men connected to the DNA sample, that sixth generation cousin who had immigrated from Italy to Hazleton in 1904. Can't make this shit up. Eric takes that man and goes up his family tree to search for any descendants who might have lived in Hazleton at the time Maurice was abducted and murdered. And wouldn't you know it? He comes across two brothers. Police immediately begin trying to track them down. But both men are dead. Let's take a break here and come back and wrap up this case with one more big, huge twist and a high-five moment. The fact that both brothers are dead is okay. Police discover one brother was married and his wife is still alive. They track her down, and as luck would have it, she happens to have an old hairbrush from her husband still in the house. They send that out for a DNA test, comparing it to the DNA they have from Maurice's crime scene. The DNA from the hairbrush is ruled out. It tells them that that man is not the killer, which only leaves one person left, his brother. A guy named James Forte. Forte was a local bartender in Hazleton. He was 22 at the time Maurice was murdered. He lived about seven blocks away from the Chivarella household. Not only had the DNA connected to Forte made him the only viable suspect left, but on paper, Forte seemed like a great potential perp, a guy who lived alone and worked at a bar and was close to Maurice. There is no doubt in my mind that Forte stalked Maurice and became obsessed with her. At the time, Forte had dark black hair, kind of slicked back, and a little boy's face. The photo of Forte from that era is strikingly similar to the one Parabon Nano Labs computers spit out. Now, look, it could be that we want to see how similar the pictures are, but there's no denying that there are very parallel characteristics in the photo of Forte and the Parabon composite. Forte did not have a criminal record at the time of Maurice's murder. He seemed to be invisible while living and working in Hazleton, a guy who tended bar and went home. Investigators could find no connection between Forte and the Chivarella family. Now, when we look past Maurice's murder into Forte's life in the years following 1964, we come to a few key moments. Forte pleaded guilty to aggravated assault in 1974, but received only probation. What's interesting about this crime is that Forte was sexually assaulting a woman in an area of town used for coal mining. The woman explained to police that had the person who spotted the crime taking place and stepped in to stop it not come along, she believed Forte would have murdered her. Four years after that crime, he was charged with recklessly endangering and harassment in yet another case. Forte himself died at 38 in 1980 of what was said to be a heart attack. Little young for a heart attack, but whatever. The guy died, and I'm happy with that because he does not deserve to live a life after what he did to that little girl. Forte was still living in Hazleton at the time of his death and had never married, but state police needed to be sure James Forte was their guy. So they exhume his body. And on February 22nd, 2022, 
58 years after the crime, making it the fourth coldest case on record solved in the United States, they have their man for certain. How certain? And I love this quote police released after exhuming Forte's body. Quote, to put the numbers in perspective, it is estimated that there have only been 117 billion people who have ever inhabited Earth. In order to find another match to Mr. Forte, you would need to search over 4 million planet Earths. Maurice's family attended a press conference presented by the state police who gave Eric Schubert the credit he deserves for cracking this case. At the press conference, Maurice's sister spoke, quote, our family now knows the identity of her murderer. Justice has been served today, end quote. That's it for this week. Be safe, be aware. I'll be back in seven days with another Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps. Sources for today's episode come from Nearly 58 Years Later, Police Solve Cold Case Murder of Nine-Year-Old Pennsylvania Girl by Amanda Jackson, CNN. After nearly 58 years, Pennsylvania police solve killing of nine-year-old girl, Amanda Holbuck, New York Times. PAHomepage.com, I-Team Cold Case Report, How a College Student Cracked the 57-Year-Old Unsolved Murder of a Nine-Year-Old Pennsylvania Girl, People Exclusive, Kristen Pelisak. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 